Podcast episode 305. I'm your host, Jonex. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And man, thank you to everyone who reached out to me about my creative funk. These solo episodes, I don't understand it. They do really, really well. So, got it off my chest, seem to have moved past it, and now we're creating again. Feeling good, feeling energized. And it helps that I'm talking to one of the comics I love most. One of the most prolifically creative people I have ever met. And someone who created a hilarious TV show that I watched all three seasons of. Of course, I'm talking about the third member of the Grawlicks to be on this show. Talked to Adam Caton Holland many years ago. Ben Roy during quarantine. And finally here, Andrew Orvidal. Now, I don't want him to feel like the bronze medal here. Because Andrew was the first one that I actually attempted to get in touch with. Eons ago, episode like six of the show... I interviewed Brandy Shigley. What's up, Brandy? I hope you're listening. Hope you're doing well. I haven't talked to you in a while. But she said, hey, would you ever want to talk to Andrew Orvidal? And I go, uh, yeah, I would. Of course I want to talk to Andrew Orvidal. She goes, all right, let me call him. Left him a voicemail. We both went our separate ways. We never reconnected. Nothing came of it. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. But that was seven and a half years ago at this point. I've been following along ever since. And in this episode, we talk about a lot of stuff. I mentioned some of the bits that I love that he's done. For instance, the acapella dubstep group. And I even remember something that he didn't, which was when he appeared in the Geek Bowl Rules video in 2010. You can find that link on the companion blog piece. It's johnofalltrades.us. I'll also link to it in the show notes. But that's all a long way of saying I appreciate this dude's work so much. And what a thrill to get to talk to him. Not only just about comedy, not only just about what it's like running a TV show, but also about his passion project, his side work. I don't know if you call it a side work, but he's a game designer. He's designed a number of games, and he has one on Kickstarter right now called Duster. You can also find a link to that in the companion blog piece and in the show notes. So there's a lot here. Talking comedy, talking entrepreneurship, talking finding your voice, and then talking game design. This episode flies by. We cover so much ground. And it's just a real privilege and a real thrill to get to highlight the work once again of someone I admire, someone I respect, and someone I just plain old enjoy. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Now then, just a couple of notes before we get going. Once again, thanks to everyone who reached out to me after my last solo episode. Again, feeling much better. If you haven't visited the homepage in a while, I've got a fun little blog series going here called Top 5 Fun Friday, where I give you a list of extremely specific pointless shit from my life no one asked for. It's a larf. It keeps me sharp. It's just a good time, and the people who read it all tell me how much they enjoy it. This last one I wrote was top five regular-ass mainstream food brands I enjoy or outright prefer. So that gives you a flavor of how esoteric, how specific, and how pointless this is. You'll mind some laughs from it. It's a good time. Also, good way of staying up on all the content on John of All Trades is on social media. That's J-O-A-T-Pod across platforms. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Those last three I'm not on very much. I just found an Instagram message from two months ago that was buried. So if you're going to reach out to me, do Facebook or do email. Email is john at deftcom.us, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Now then, that's enough plugage for the front end. Let's get to this week's episode. Andrew Orvidal is my guest. 
He is from the Growlix. He is from those who can't. He is from the game Duster, which he has designed, which is currently on Kickstarter. And he is the creator of some of my favorite stand-up comedy. He's episode 305 of the John of All Trades podcast, which starts right now. It kind of, I have a pretty weird situation because I'm also a dad. I have a 12 year old daughter who I have every other week. So, uh, there's oh, a sure. kind of like two drastically different lifestyles. There's dad lifestyle where I'm getting up to get ready for school, take her to school, you know, pick her up, cook decent meals, you know, being, being a dad for sure. a whole week. And then there is not dad week where the, uh, I kind of get up when my dogs wake me up. They just will tell me when they're ready to eat and go outside. I got to take care of them. It's just kind of like whatever project. I have like 30-ish projects that are like, I kind of imagine them on like a carousel and they come <laughs> around and it's kind of like, all right, well, what's the project we're working on? And some of them, they're, they have to be done because there's a deadline, but some of them, they just, I work on them because it's like, oh yeah, I have a new idea for this, whether it's a game or a comedy project or a TV show pitch or a movie script, whatever it is. I used to keep like a big whiteboard that I would like organize all the projects and that just didn't really work with the way I work. Uh, it felt kind of like artificial trying to like force myself to work yeah. on specific things. So yeah, this project uh, carousel just kind of turns and we see what is on it. But so I'm, um, I'm sorry, did you say 30 ish? Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that, that that's a lot that feels like a lot uh or or is that is that fairly standard for you do you have like a ton of irons in the fire at all times or because that's a lot um, man. it's kind of spread out though you know there's like tv show ideas uh would fill one of the you know a, a handful of those movie scripts i'm working on like a scripted podcast for kids idea with a friend of mine um, I've got these board game ideas and then I've got role playing game ideas. So yeah, it is a lot, but it is at least diversified in these different areas. Um, but then sometimes I have to focus in on one. Like right now I have a game on Kickstarter yeah. and I'm going to fulfill it in February of 2022. So now it's not optional to like <laughs> dabble in that. It's like this one has to be done organize the art, do this, do that, you know, uh, do finish all those little, uh, aspects of it. Yeah. And then I imagine there's standing stuff too. Like you've got your monthly Growlix show, you've got Growlix saves the world podcast. And so, I mean, th those things like this show for me, they always just sort of exist and I'm always paying attention to them, but because they've been going for a while now, it's just kind of part of my life. And then new things come in and I, I have to accommodate for them. Is that sort of what you're describing to me? Yeah, totally. In the comedy world, as far as stand up in like comedy podcasting, it's very easy because there's virtually no prep for our podcast. We have a producer, Ron Doyle, who's like a wizard. He does all the actual work. So we just literally sign on and just start like goofing around. Well, uh, dude, I got I got to give a shout to Ron real quick because I'm also a professional producer for like four or five different shows right now. And when I listen to your show, man, it is perfectly done. So, like, Ron is, I know Ron's like the glue and he's doing all the behind the scenes stuff there, but it sounds exceptional. And, and yours is one of my favorite shows to listen to. I listened to it on the plane just Thanks. the other day. So 
Um, yeah, b- big ups to Ron for that. So just yeah, to Ron call is that the out. man. He pulls off some amazing stuff, uh, little audio surgery, moving stuff around, and and you'd never never know it. You know, the the podcast couldn't be easier. I don't have to worry about that. And then same with stand up. I the way I do stand up, I don't really like sit down and prep it. I usually just right before I go on stage, look at my joke book and kind of think like, okay, I'll try these jokes or whatever. So that is also not, not that significant of a lift. It just kind of, uh, it's yeah. simply the easiest of all my, of all my jobs, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, I, that's gotta be a good place to be. And by the way, first of all, this is Andrew Orvidal, member of the Growlix, one of my favorite stand-up comedians. I've, I've seen you live a couple of times and you always knock me on my ass. Like I'm always surprised because, and, and I will say that about Growlix saves the world too, because I feel like I never see you coming. Right? Like Ben and Adam, it's like, okay, I kind of know what I'm getting with Adam because like I followed Adam for a long time when he was at the Westward. And then Ben, like we share a love of punk rock and stuff, but you always somehow come up with this right cross that puts me on my ass every single Growlix episode. And so I've been itching to talk to you because I don't remember exactly where I was going with this, but it's amazing to me to hear that comedy is like the easiest part for you because I think that's an enviable position for a lot of folks. You know, people are striving really hard to find their voice and, and, you know, be a comic who's successful. And you, you look at this and you go, oh, okay, I know what I'm going to do. And you can kind of go out there with a, a, what you're describing is a minimal amount of prep. How, how long did it take you to get to that level of comfort in terms of your comedy? Uh, I've been doing comedy, geez, uh, like um, about 18 years now. So just, <laughs> I guess it just kind of evolved that way. Like I definitely used to... You know, when I started, every joke was very precious and I definitely <laughs> overthought, uh, you know, the, my sets and the jokes I wanted to tell. Over time, I found that kind of like relaxing a little bit on that. And I mean, there, this is just a style choice. Some comics, they write out the whole joke. They sit there, they write out every word of the joke. It's all written out. And that just, that style never worked for me. So I just kind of take the, the, the tiny little idea that is the joke. I don't have my joke book on me, but, uh, it's, it's, it'll be like just a handful of words. Um, uh, like you were mentioning, you just listened to my bit called Rosemary bit a kid. So uh, in my joke book, that would look like, uh, it would literally just be the word Rosemary. And I would remember <laughs> seeing that dog at the dog park, or it would be like Rosemary, the dog or something. And then I'm just like, Oh yeah, that's cause all, all my jokes are, they're either based on a true story that happened, okay. which is great because that's couldn't be easier to remember. It's true. It, it happened to me or it's just like a true observation or whatever. So I just kind of need to remember, like, what was this stupid thing I saw? <laughs> and I just kind of write that down. And then sometimes my brain forgets and I'll find an old joke book and I'll be like, what the I don't I have no idea what this bit was supposed to be. Well, remind- but yeah, it just kind of evolved that way to where I learned to not be so precious with jokes because jokes come from like the same place all ideas come from. And there's an infinite amount. There is not, it's not like a a well with a bottom. So it's like, if a joke doesn't work, let it go. If you find out a more famous comedian has the same joke, let it go. Like there's no, if a, if a lamer comedian has the same joke as you, you can still let your joke (laughs) go. You're going to think of a new joke. You don't have to like, 
Uh, they're not these uh, precious little artifacts. Yeah, they're not like tiny little pearls that you've mined from yeah. the bottom of the ocean. Um, exactly. Well, and, and at a certain point, I mean, you've got to have a little bit of brand equity here with the people who come to see you because you've been around for a while and you've built this name for yourself. So people go, okay, I, I know kind of the style of what I'm going to get from Andrew Orvidal. I don't know what he's going to talk about, but I'm excited to see him whatever he's talking about. Do you get that a little bit? Um. Yeah, I don't know. I think of the three of us, if we're comparing just within the Grolix, um, uh, I th- would say obviously Ben has the strongest voice. Like you just not only literally, uh, you know, <laughs> his delivery, but he just has these very strong points of view. He's often contrarian. He'll be talking about something that challenges you or you're like, I don't, I don't agree with that. And then you listen to the bit and you laugh and you're like, Oh, that was great. Um, and Adam, I think has a strong voice too. He has his like character. Uh, that sort of a dickish personality. Hopefully he agrees with that. <laughs> but you know, he kind of like, that is like a vibe in some, in some of his jokes. Yeah, like, like he dials it up. Like there's, there's yeah. like a pretentious edge to it almost. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. uh, so I think he's, he has a pretty strong voice. And I would say the three of us, my voice is probably the most turned down. I don't really have. Yeah. I don't know. I guess if anything, what people would expect would be like, oh, I'm going to hear like true stories. Like these right. will all, well, like I ran a storytelling show forever in, in Denver and I got to hear a lot of people tell stories and I told a lot of stories and there's like human beings have this like innate bullshit detector. <laughs> like, a like <laughs> we all have like a little lie detector and it goes off when people hear a story that is either not true or has stuff in it that's not true. It just, even if you can't put your finger on it, you can just tell. And I think people like when comedy comes from like, I mean, you can also make stuff up. There's that style of comedy, one-liner jokes, whatever. Sure. But I think people like hearing true things in comedy because they're like, oh yeah, this is true. This really happened and I can identify with it because it's real. Like this is, even if it seems outlandish, people do this stuff because this person saw it happen and they're telling me about it. Well, so. what's interesting to, to me about that is, so I watched all three seasons of those who can't and of the characters, I think you're, you're the furthest away from Fairbell compared to the other two. Like, you know, you could see shoemaker a little bit in, in Ben a little bit more strongly. You can see Lauren in Adam pretty strongly, but I'd, I'd say you're pretty far away from Fairbell. Do you ever fight against that perception? <laughs> like people who, who know you and then, or, or maybe they're expecting to see Coach Fairbell. Um, that, that's happened a few times, not in a long time, but when the show was on, I would go do comedy places and, uh, after the show, yeah, people would be like, Oh, you're not like that character. I was like, did you think I was going to be that level of idiot? You, <laughs> you came out here to hear. An insanely stupid person talk for an, an hour. Um, and I guess, I don't know if they thought I was going to do the character or if they thought I was like kind of a dipshit, but, um, yeah, that just kind of like rapidly devolved in that way. The original character was just kind of like naive and, you know, not that sharp, but kind of innocently uh, naive. And then he just got stupider <laughs> and stupider and stupider. And every season at the end of the season, we'd be like, Hey, let's kind of course correct with Fairbell and make him a little <laughs> bit smarter because he's, he's, he's devolving and he would instantly be even stupider and stupid. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was fun. It was fun to play 
playing a really dumb character is a lot of fun. It's like, I think it's, I probably had the easiest job of all of the actors just because they're like, what would, an, what would a very stupid person do in this situation? You don't have to play up to your character's intelligence. You sure, can kind yeah. of just be very dumb. I imagine, except for that mustache, right? How, how, how was, uh, live, existing in the world with that incredible, like, Ned Flanders mustache? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, sometimes I bring the mustache back if I, if I'll be bored or whatever. <laughs> That's usually how the only, uh, white people would even recognize me was if I had the mustache. If I would shave it, nobody would have, nobody would have any idea. Sure. You're like a wrestler wearing a mask at that point, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> like my Superman glasses. <laughs> Yeah, the Clark Kent glasses. Yeah. Perfect. Um, one, one of the things that, uh, I remember Ben talking about at one point uh, with regard to that show was they said, and I mean, the fact that you have 30 different ideas, everything from board games to TV show pitches to scripted podcasts for kids, they mentioned you as the idea guy for that show. You were just like this endless spring of ideas. And Ben mentioned that, that you brought that to the Growlix as well. And I'll say that. I, I imagine this is almost everyone's favorite episode of Those Who Can, but it's the Farebell tape, which yeah. <laughs> was one of the episodes of TV that made me laugh the hardest I think I've ever seen. But I, I'm curious about, does the well ever get dry for you? And when what happens when that happens? How do you overcome that? Because, I mean, I, I've seen you do stand-up. It was a Growlick show. It might have been at High Plains, but you did uh, an acapella dubstep group. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, with my buddies, uh, Andy and Robert. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, insane. <laughs> uh, it was hilarious too, because I, you said we're going to do an acapella dubstep group. And I go, how are they going to do this? And I heard it and I go, holy shit, they actually pulled this off. <laughs> uh, but, but how do you keep does, the idea train rolling? I mean, generally, I guess I keep it rolling by adding to it all the time. <laughs> like if I am out somewhere and I get an idea like, oh, that would be a cool show or, oh, that might be a fun game. I have like a, you know, a note app on my phone and I, and I write it in there and it kind of gets put into the, the mix and, and maybe it never gets explored again. It, it never comes back around or maybe it, it gets followed up on, but it's there. I think it's really helpful to just have those ideas. So if you're stuck on an idea, like, I don't really know what to do with this idea. Boom. You've got other ideas. You don't just have all your eggs in one basket. Like there's like this stereotype in Los Angeles of people who have one script and they're working on their one script and it's all they're doing. They're writing on it every day. They're working on it every day. And I was like, I can't, I can't imagine that life of just having one script because when you do run into a a wall with it, what do you do? You just sit there staring at the, (laughs) at the wall. Like that would be crazy. But I have like, episodes of of being depressed and stuff where I just don't want to work on anything. And, uh, then I just don't work on stuff. I, uh, you know, I'll read or I'll just watch, I'll binge a show or I'll do something. And I kind of think of that. I'm like, Oh, well maybe this is like, you know, my brain recharging its batteries because I'm sure it, it gets kind of exhausted working on stuff. Um, so yeah, I feel like, you know, that gets shunned on of like, oh, you're playing video games or you're doing, it's like, it's good to have other outlets and let your brain take a little break every now and then. I, I agree. Um, as, as someone who, I mean, I, I have to be creative. I do a lot of writing for clients. I'm working on podcasts for clients and things like that. It's nothing that's like, 
going to be out front that a ton of people are going to see, but I still have to be creative. And, and there are times where I really like to work on a creative project that has absolutely no stakes. That's just something for me. So for instance, one of the things that me and my friends do is we'll compile like lists of music videos. And this, by the way, you should pitch this to Adam. He would absolutely adore this. Um, <laughs> but we, everyone comes with 10 music videos and they'll send them to me and I'll put them into a curated playlist and then we get all messed up and we watch them. Um, and it's like a little music video theater, but it's this curated playlist that takes me a little bit of creative energy, but has virtually no stakes at all. Yeah. Uh, are, are there things like that where you kind of just work on them in the background? You know, they're not going to see the light of day, but they're just for your own personal, pure enjoyment. Like I run role playing games with friends. We play, we play over Zoom like this and we play with people all over the country. I've met people who I would never have had a chance to meet other ways. And um, yeah, we're just like playing games for fun. And it's a little, I mean, it's work a little bit on my part because I got to run the game and prep the game and do all that. But there's no, it's not like I'm being judged. There's not like, a, or, or being paid for it or anything. So right. it's just creative work for the sake of creative work. And that, I think that's like the most fun way to do it. Same with Grolic Saves the World, the podcast, like, um, yeah, it is a product that we're putting out there, an entertainment product, but we're not like beholden to anyone. We don't have like a boss or anything. We get to come in and we kind of get to make up our, our own rules. And as a result, I always look forward to it. It's never like, Oh God, I got a podcast <laughs> tomorrow. Uh, it's always like, Oh yeah, cool. It's Monday morning. It's, uh, we're podcasting. So I think creative stuff like that, whenever there's that like, purity where you're you know you're not beholden to anyone it's not commercial work those are always like the most rewarding projects i think yeah for the, sure. the, the shit with no stakes is always i mean not not to say there aren't stakes on on things like that but um when the stakes are lower and you're doing it for the pure joy i imagine that calculus changes a little bit when you know you're going to get corporal punishment because one of my favorite uh Gralix episodes was the with the weapon spatch yeah. <laughs> yeah, we get, we're going to bring that back. We have some ideas to to bring that goddamn spatula back. But yeah, sometimes the challenges are horrible and they are work. But the <laughs> but the initial sitting down for the podcast, I always look forward to. But there's definitely been some challenges where I'm like, "Oh my god, I do not want to do this." Where I where I dread them. Uh yeah, for sure. And any come um, to mind like specifically? That one where we had to get on Ben's diet, the whole thirty diet, that really sucked. I, uh, it was it was brutal. The one where we couldn't use any plastic was oh, frustrating. Yeah. Even though, like, pretty quickly, I was like, gave up on it. But even when you give up on it, you still feel bad. You're like, oh man, like, there's a lot of plastic out there in the world. Yeah, having to read uh, the Twilight novel, Jesus, like that, <laughs> absolutely sure. Which yeah, which is, which movie was it you were supposed to watch that you that you hated? Jerry Maguire. That's right. Yeah, I had to watch Jerry Maguire. I hated uh, that as well, but I sat all the way through it. Yeah, um, have you ever heard Pat Oswalt's bit about Jerry Maguire when his brother yells "fuck you" at Tom Cruise at the end? No. <laughs> it's it's so funny. It's it's one of Patton's funniest bits where his brother, he, unbeknownst to him, his brother is just grinding his molars watching this thing. And he's like, you get to the end, and it's a hard, dramatic pull into his face. And he goes, we live in a cynical world. And my brother just goes, fuck you. <laughs> he said I was laughing so hard. And I, the whole time I listened to that episode, all I could think was, I'm like, I'll bet that, 
I bet Andrew identifies with that. Yeah, I I didn't like it, and I was I guess I was kind of I was confused why that was. That's like this iconic romantic <laughs> uh, movie. I was like, man, I do not like this, but that's just not my kind of movie anyway. Yeah. Um, but it was still fun. Even then, it's it's fun to shit on movies and stuff. So it, it was still it was still worth it. Oh yeah, I mean, I some of my fondest memories are going to shitty movies and watching them now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, why not? Right. That's that's part of the joy. Totally. I'm interested in this part because this is not something that I do a lot, but you are like a game designer and I'm always interested in game. Like, I, I don't want to say game theory because I think that also means something else that I'm not intending it to. But when you are inventing a game, what is that process like? Do you get the germ of an idea or like a style of play? Like, here's something I'd like to do or here's something I haven't experienced in a game. How, how do you get to the point where you're developing games? Because I think that's really cool. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess I could take it all the way back to when I first started getting into designing games. I have like a pretty big board game collection and I've always enjoyed games, board games and stuff like that. And what, do you have favorites? What are your favorites? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have so many. Um, I like this game called Scythe a lot. I have this game called Project Elite, which is really fun. Uh, there's a, uh, game called Unmatched, which is great by Mondo Games. There's a, there's a, there's a whole bunch, but, cool. um, in playing these games, every now and then I'd run into a game where I would be like, oh, this is like an okay game, but I feel like if it was like this, it might be more fun. And I started like realizing that you can just kind of like tinker with these games if you want, if you see these opportunities and change stuff. And I was like, oh, well, I could also just make my own games and you can buy a game board game designers kit. They sell them at the wizard's chest right here in Denver oh, really? and cool. just kind of like screwing around with like making my own games and game ideas and stuff. And then from that evolved making role-playing games, which is a, a kind of a whole different animal. That's like Dungeons and Dragons, that kind of thing. Um, it's just kind of telling a story all together using dice and, I evolved into doing more of that because during the pandemic, that was just like the much easier thing to develop because I didn't need to manufacture little board game pieces and I could play it remotely with people just using, you know, Zoom or, or whatnot. Sure. Uh, but to answer your question more, uh, as I'm, as I am rambling here. Yeah. The ideas either come from a mechanic that I think would be cool. Like, Oh, what if, what if there was a game where. Um, you actually made little buildings out of the dice or something, you know, like if there's like a mechanic that comes to mind that I haven't seen before, or if there's like a theme that I think would be fun in a game, like I'll be like, oh, it'd be cool to make a board game that takes place at a dog park and you control both like your person and your dog. And it's just like, cause anyone who's ever spent any time in dog park knows that there's like, you know, there's good dogs and bad dogs and, annoying people and i think there you can put a lot of personalities into that yeah it's just kind of like it's either a mechanic or a theme usually okay. and same with role-playing games it'll be like i want to make a game that kind of uh is set in this world like i'm working on a game right now that's like a fantasy game with mice like a classic red wall mouse guard secret of nim style like everybody loves you know fantasy mice. Sure. <laughs> it, it's been around forever and I was like, I would like to do a take on that because 
uh, I've always, I grew up liking, liking that stuff. So it's a role playing game that where the characters are mice in this fantasy world. Yeah. It just kind of starts from there. And then I just develop it and I just try to make the mechanics and the theme work together. You don't want mechanics that feel oddly at odds, oddly at odds, uh, right. <laughs> oddly, uh, working against your theme and vice versa. You kind of, you know, the, the, the game is clicking when it feels like those two things are working together for sure. Yeah, most definitely. And you don't want to make it like Cones of Dunshire, right? Where it's like punishingly in- intricate, unless you do. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, um, I don't, I generally don't like that level. Some of my board games are pretty complex, but if the theme is cool and it, and it all works, then it's, I have this game called Nemesis. It's basically like the movie Alien, but they didn't get the license for it, but it's <laughs> like, it takes like four and a half hours to play and it's, and it is brutal. Like the success rate is very low. You, you, you <laughs> run around this ship with these aliens and most of the time you die in some horrible way. Either the aliens <laughs> get you or fire or the ship explodes. Something, and it takes four and a half hours to get to that bad point. And the <laughs> rule book is thick and, and there's a lot of stuff, but they pull it off. Everything works enough so that if you can just like invest in it and have, you know, the patience to be like, all right, I'm going to see where this game takes me. Um, it's fun. It's like a movie. It's like experiencing the tension of a good sci-fi horror movie, just like Alien. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I try to play that game whenever I can. Like, if you were to pitch it, like, my girlfriend will never play it. She's like, I'm never playing that game with you. Four and a half hours, no <laughs> fucking way I'm never playing that game with you. Oh, yeah, can we cuss on this? Uh, it doesn't matter, yeah. Okay. I, I think I, I already talked about Tom Cruise, you know, screaming fuck you at Tom Cruise. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, cool. I, I always forget to ask, but, yeah, my girlfriend, she's never going to play that game with me. But it's a good game. So, I think it, every now and then... Uh, that stuff works. But for my own game design, I like games where they're not that hard to learn and they're not that hard to play. Because I have a 12-year-old kid. I know what it's like trying to get people to sit down at the table and play a game. And <laughs> having a nice, easy explanation of how to play the game is is clutch. That's what you want. So Yeah, yeah. That's um, I, I think that's well stated. I'm curious, when you are developing a game... How much tinkering do you have to do? Like, do you do you get people together and do like beta testing and kind of play it a little bit and go, oh, okay, this this rule needs a tweak, or we need uh, this type of character, this type of reward system, or whatever? How much tinkering goes into that? Uh, a, a ton, a ton of uh, play testing and tinkering with board games. I will usually play them against myself first, just to do the most basic test. Yeah, the rote kind of mechanics. Yeah, and yeah. I'll be like, oh, okay, this seems to be working. And then I'll play with other people and just kind of, I just log down, like, how long did it take to explain how to play the game? How long did it take to actually play the game? What speed bumps did we hit in playing the game that stopped the action of the game because somebody yeah. didn't understand something? Uh, was there any way, the the biggest thing I look for is, there, is there anything broken in the game that can be exploited so that someone can like guarantee that they'll win. Cause that's, mm. that exists even in other published games. I have games where my daughter has done something very weird in the game that clearly the game designer never thought anyone would do. <laughs> and then she wins the game and it's like, you got to find a way to, to seek that stuff out. So playing with other people is crucial because their brains are going to work differently, especially 
if I can get my daughter to play a game, that's great because she's she might play the game in an intentionally backwards way, and she could you know we can stumble upon one of these uh, gaps that that could be exploited. So yeah, with a board game, and it's similarly with my role playing games, you just have to keep crunching the different combinations and. Uh, I basically ask people like try to break the game, okay. like try to exploit the rules, try to find um, a cheat code, so to speak. Yeah, like don't just play it like yeah, like when you play, you know, you can play Dungeons and Dragons. You all just you're having fun and you're all just kind of agreeing to the rule set, and you usually you aren't playing to like oh I found this thing to kind of break the game. But in the case of playtesting, I'm like yeah, try to break the game, try to find okay, yeah. something in here that you can work to your advantage in a, in an unfair way. And we find stuff all the time. I work on the, I work on uh, this duster game that I have on Kickstarter right now. I work on it every day, every single day. There's something to be tweaked or like a screw that needs tightened yeah. or a word that needs changed. So yeah, well, it takes a lot of work. I, I was going to ask you about that because yeah, you have this game duster on Kickstarter um, so first I'd, I'd like to hear about it. And then secondly, how long in development has that been? Like, so, you know, you, you have this idea, you start to develop it, you put it on Kickstarter about how long is that development process for you? This game Duster, it came out of a, a number of different like fiction ideas that I was working on. Like years and years ago, I did the national novel writing month challenge where you have to write a novel in the month of November, Jesus. Uh, which is a, it's a bunch of fun. It's great. If you like writing and you, you battle with writer's block. I would highly recommend National Novel Writing Month because you can't have writer's block. You have to write every single day to hit your, the minimum goal is 50,000 words, which is a very small novel, but that's what you have to write in the month of November. It's, it's a great challenge. But anyway, I wrote, I wrote up the science fiction idea for that, that challenge. And then I thought it could be a cool comic book. And then it, I did nothing with it. It just kind of was like dusty in my brain for literally a decade, 15 years, whatever. Wow. And uh, then when I started getting into role-playing games again a, a few years ago, it kind of came back and I was like, oh yeah, this could be a role-playing game. But it was like too complex. Like the world was like too far-reaching and I, it, it kind of just seemed like over, overload for people, especially this isn't like a licensed property. It's not like Star Wars or something where... right. You know, people have had 40 years to, uh, to learn all of this nonsense. So I kind of just simplified the idea. So it's this post-apocalyptic world that they've rebuilt into like kind of a Western aesthetic. And so the players are in, in that world. It's kind of like a Mad Max meets your favorite Western vibe world. And then from there, I just designed a game engine that I like based on things that I do and don't like with other games. I just wanted to make it simple to learn, quick to start playing. I wanted it to flow quickly without like, you know, like if you get into a fight in Dungeons and Dragons, it's like, oh, this can take a, an hour. It can take <laughs> two hours. It just really, and I was like, oh, it'd be cool if there was like a faster way to fight that was still like fun and gave people like cool, big moments. Yeah, and um, satisfying, right? I mean, you're, you're looking yeah. for satisfaction from your game, some level of joy out of the, the combat. Yeah, I get it. Exactly. It's a fantasy, even if it's a grim fantasy, which sometimes this game can be. People are escaping for a few hours while they're playing it. And 
uh, it can be re- rewarding. They want that big cinematic moment where they feel like a hero in the spotlight of, you know, a, an action movie. And so I think the game delivers all, all, all of that. And I've been working on it uh, over two years now. Yeah, I, I basically I wrote it up and then I just started playtesting it uh, with a group that I play games with. And they're like very good at role-playing games. They've been playing role-playing games, most of them for like their whole lives, ever since they were kids. You know, they're what I would describe as power gamers. Like they... If you give them a little crack in the wall, they will find it and they will blow it open. They will. They're very hard to run games for because they're, they're, they're just clever, uh, experienced role playing game players. So they were the perfect group to play test it and test it out with. And then, like I said, it's just working on it pretty much every day in some capacity. And then I, I had a personal goal that when my company mailing list had a hundred subscribers, I would launch it on Kickstarter, which was, uh, it was like a pretty audacious goal because I needed more than a hundred people to back the project. Yeah. But I'd been working on it forever and I was like, you can't wait for the perfect time for anything. Even with my stand-up comedy, if you're thinking about getting into stand-up comedy, you can't wait until you have good jokes. You will yeah. never have good jokes to start doing stand-up comedy. You have to just jump into the cold, deep end of the pool and start doing it. And, and then you'll, you'll start getting good jokes. Yeah. And I guess I, having learned that philosophy, uh, with comedy, I've just applied it to games where it's like, there's not going to be a perfect time to release my game. I, at some point, I just have to like put it out there and see what happens. But <laughs> it wasn't necessarily magic that it happened with this game. I bought a shit ton of ads. And so I was able to meet the the goals. So the game got backed, and it will be printed up and everything, which is great. But okay, um, so so let me ask you about that. I I looked on Kickstarter, and you've met your goal. You've far exceeded your goal, which is awesome. Is that the end goal in and of itself, or do you have a higher vision for this? Like, what if if this game were to ascend whatever mountaintop you have in mind for it? What would that look like? Uh, that's a great question. Cause I, I definitely have taken it one step at a time. My goal for the Kickstarter was I want to put my game out in the world in a hardback book form, which is like what the average game is published in, in a hardback right. book. I was like, I, that's, that was my goal. And if I make zero money, that's fine. I would just want to put the game out there and share it with people. So that was like the first goal I had. And then if I look beyond that, like, well, what, what could it be beyond that? I, uh, ideally I'd like it to, to be a hit with the people who play it and for there to be like a community, uh, around it, just like with other role playing games, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or Blades in the Dark or whatever game, you know, mm-hmm. people kind of, there's communities and people share their ideas and their adventures and stuff. Um, that would be great. And then, you know, there's expansions for the game and there's a sequel game that I'm already working on. So, you know, just seeing it grow would uh, would be great. But it would also, I'd love to do a comic book of it. I have like a TV show pitch of this game world that uh, I've been working on. So it would be cool to see it expand into other properties together. But I guess I just take it like one step at a time. And at this point, uh, I'll deliver the best book that I can. I've got these rad artists yeah. working on it with me. But then it's kind of up to the game to perform with people and hopefully 
people like it from maybe people will get the book and I'll get a lot of feedback of like, I hate this. I hate this. But <laughs> I mean, in all of my play tests so far, people have seemed to really enjoy it. So, so and there's always th- things that can be fixed. I'm sure they'll have a, I'll probably be reprinting the game in five years with a, with a totally revised rule book. That's just the nature of, of the, the game system. You know? So you, you've touched on something important here, which is, Build the thing for the joy of building it, but also create the architecture that could support it going large if that's what it's going to do. I get a lot of people asking me how to start a podcast, what to do, and I always tell them, I'm like, don't do anything that makes your show look cheap right up front. Don't step over a dollar to pick up a dime and make sure you are set up if this thing actually catches fire. So, like, have that in the back of your head. You don't want to be caught flat-footed. You want to be able to scale up if you can. And it sounds like you've taken steps to ensure that, which I think is really cool. Because there's always another mountain to climb, too, which is really important to to remember in that, yes, we created this game or you created this podcast or whatever. But, hey, what's the next step? If that comes, it may never come, and a lot of things don't take off. But if they do, are you set up and are you prepared for that to happen? Yeah, exactly. The one The one thing I don't really know how to handle would be like retail oh, sure. distribution, all of that kind of stuff. Like if, if game stores, I mean, game stores can hit me up for it and I can send them to them individually. But if it became like, yeah, if you're in target or lo- something, yeah, like a lot of stores wanted it. I have no idea how that all happens logistically, but that's something that, you know, I would handle when it, when it comes up, I'm sure that there's, you know, you just partner up with a distributor and, it all it all happens, but yeah, that would be a level of success that I'm I'm not sure what that looks like, but I would just cross that bridge when absolutely when I come to well, it. and and that's one that that's a couple of steps removed from what we're describing here. I would I would say, but speaking of other mountains to climb, it's interesting to me because you and Adam and Ben have had a TV show, a successful TV show on that that lasted three seasons. And I would say that's an aspirational goal for a lot of people in the entertainment industry. I mean, now that that show has ended, and I'm assuming those who can't is not coming back. Is that right? Not that I know. Not that I know. <laughs> it's on. It's on HBO Max now. So now, right. like, it's cool that a lot of people are seeing it who didn't see it before because they didn't know the true TV existed. But no, there's no, there's definitely no plans right. in the works for it to come back at, the, at this moment. Okay. But you, you reach this goal, and I always, I'm always interested in this, particularly when it comes to athletes, because, you know, you spend your entire life playing this sport or playing this game or whatever it is you're doing. And then at some point, you're no longer playing that, and you're like 35 years old. If I saw your stand up correctly, you just turned 40, as did I. How was that experience for you? And do you have desire to get on TV again? Do you want to start another show? Do you, like, what's the next mountain for you in terms of, of going forward in your entertainment career because getting a show on TV that not only you created, but you started and you wrote, um, all of those things, that's a pretty big like peak in a career. What's the next one for you? What's it look like? Yeah. I mean, we were so lucky. We really had a kind of a Cinderella story of going from making our little web series just for the fun of it to getting to be uh, on our own TV show. We got to, <laughs> we got to leapfrog so much of the of the showbiz <laughs> grind that other people have to do of like, oh, I was a writer's assistant or I was a PA or I did this and that. I worked on the show that I hated. We didn't we didn't have to do any of that. We got to just go to 
making our own show and, and being, you know, the bosses of the, of the show and everything, which, uh, was a very fortunate and I think rare treat, uh, for us in general. But, uh, since then I have worked on other entertainment projects in that other capacity of like, Oh, I'm just like a, a writer. I'm just one of the yeah. writers on this project. And, the boss is really mean and the project sucks. And it's like, <laughs> it's very sobering. It's like, Oh, this is not fun or good or cool. <laughs> like this is bad. Uh, I guess, to, but to answer the question, I guess it would be great to have another TV show out there, whether, you know, even if it's not necessarily something that I would star in, even if I created and write it and it stars other people, um, that would be cool. It's, it's very fun to write scripts. I love doing it. It's one of the few things in my life where I've felt, you know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with imposter syndrome. Everyone oh, is sure. where you get, you know, you're doing something and you're like, am I like legit at this? Am I doing, it happens in every industry. It, it happens with everyone. And for me, the one endeavor that I never really felt the imposter syndrome with was like writing scripts. I was like, oh, this just feels like in my wheelhouse. Yeah. And so to be able to do that again on, on a, a cool project, that would be, obviously it's not like a higher mountain because I already did it with those who can't, but another mountain sure. would be great. Um, I guess. And a movie I've, I've always been a huge fan of movies. I've loved movies. I would love to write a movie and in the showbiz industry, the feedback you get on that all always from everyone is like, you don't want to write movies because you make more money on TV because you can get, it's like seasons of TV. And if yeah. your show is a hit, it keeps making seasons and you keep making money. Whereas with a movie, you just get this one little like chunk of money. So what, what I would, what I've always heard is like, you don't want to do movies, which is frustrating. Cause it's like, no, I do want to do movies. Even <laughs> if the money is not as good as a, as a TV show, just as a fan of movies, it would be fun to, have a movie you know out there in the world yep. so well, maybe that would be my if i had to pick an undiscovered mountain i would love to uh to have a movie out there well it's cool to hear too that your experience because from what i understand of the experience it's very stressful when you are you know creating this tv show and when i when i spoke to ben last year he talked about how it gave him terrible anxiety and I, it's nice to hear that it, it hasn't soured you on the experience and that no, you'd take another it, crack at it. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely was very, 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 very stressful for sure. But it was a kind of stress that was fun. But again, we were in the enviable position of being the bosses. So it was stressful, yeah. but we were the ones like no one could yell at us really like <laughs> yeah. because we, it was our show. So I've been in other scenarios since where that was not the case. And when it got stressful, the boss would yell at the people and talk down to people and demean them. And you couldn't just be like, Hey, fuck you, man. You can't talk to me like that. I'm an, I'm an adult. You're an adult. Don't talk to me that way. You just, everyone's just kind of like quiet in the zoom call. And then you're like, Oh gosh, that sucked. And it's like, that is awful. So as stressful as it was, it's that kind of stress that I feel like is manageable because you're not being demeaned or anything but basically the i learned this i went to the showrunner workshop uh at the writers guild and they explained it like it's like when you're working on a show it's like someone has handed you the keys to like a multi-million dollar car for you to drive and it's your job 
not to fuck it up or crash it <laughs> or anything. It's like, take this, take this car and then bring it, bring it back to us in an amazing shape. And so there, it is a lot writing on it. It's not just a script or just an acting performance. Like when you're, when you're acting on the show, there's a hundred people on the other side of the camera who are baking in the sun. It's like 108 degrees out. Uh, they're exhausted. They're tired. If you are bad at your job, if you forget your line, if you fucking giggle because it's, it's funny or something, th- there's like a hundred people who are like suffering off camera because you're, because you're doing it. And, and like blue um, collar folks too, like, yeah, yeah like and carpenters they, and fucking caterers and exactly. shit, right? Yeah. And this is just their job. Like they don't, it's not their investment. Like for you, you're yeah. on the screen on the TV show. For them, it's like, I need to get paid and I'm just trying to, to do my job. They bust their ass way harder than any actor on the show, but you do feel that weight over and it's, and it is stressful to like, you know, you, you have to, you have to execute this really well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you're like, we're the bosses. So people can't necessarily yell at us. A lot of people don't want that position though, because that's a lot of pressure, right? When it's riding on you, people will go, okay, I get yelled at, but ultimately at the end of the day, I'm just going to go home. Work day's over, right? But for you, in a lot of ways, your nuts are on the chopping block and that pressure will sometimes get to people. But Sounds like you, you took to it really well. Yeah, we, uh, we were lucky also to have the three of us to kind of diversify the, the sure. stress between us. But like Ben, if we could just talk about Ben for a quick moment, <laughs> Ben absorbs extra stress because he can't help. He will read, he re- would read the reviews online. He would read people's comments. He's always done that. He would, he's the kind of person that reads YouTube comments. Oh, or videos. Jesus. Like, oh, that's you're not just good. just like glutton for punishment. You are making yourself go crazy. And he would follow the ratings of our show. He'd be like, Oh, I got the ratings. And oh, we no. would tell him. We don't want to know the ratings. Do not tell us the ratings. We cannot change them. We have no control over them. Why should we be stressed out of, uh, about this? Like it's out of our hands. And he, he absorbs that extra amount of it, which he gobbles it up. He's like Pac-Man with these stress pellets. And, uh, <laughs> I think when you're doing a creative endeavor, don't, pay attention to the stuff you have no control over. Like you, you got to keep, you got to keep your eyes. Of it. You got to keep yeah. your eyes on your own paper. Exactly. Like, make the thing that you wanted to make, put your best effort into it. Take care of the people who you're working with. All, all those things, the shit that you have absolutely no control over. Why even don't look over there. Don't do it. Well, and, and at a certain point, like you, you made the show. It's out there. It no longer belongs to you. It belongs to the public. And the public yeah. is going to receive it however it receives it. Your job is to just make it as good as you possibly can. That's, that's, exactly. I, the, the very first site I ever created, I was following like the, the page views a lot and I started chasing them and it was making me just miserable because I wasn't creating the art I wanted to create anymore. So I totally identify with that. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's like a trap. You just gotta, yeah, you gotta do, do, the work that is quality for you and trust that the right people will find it at the, at the right time. That's right. Uh, or they won't, but at least you had a good time doing it. <laughs> <All right>. That's, <laughs> that's right. It reminds me, I got to bring it back to this. This is the very first thing I ever saw you in. It was before I knew who you were. I knew who Adam was, but you were in the geek bowl rules video. <laughs> yeah. For, uh, from... yeah. I used to write, 
questions for uh that was like you worked for geeks one of my freelance jobs for a very long time yeah i wrote the pub quiz questions wow with uh truly with... mind-numbing uh oh <laughs> uh, man i would just sit there my brain talk about hitting a wall of writer's block i'd be like i have explored every every corner of pop culture <laughs> that's how i would feel and i did it for years years and years i oh, wrote those shit, questions really? So, yeah, I mean, I, I did a whole, like, geek month one time. I did a team. I did a quiz master. I did uh, the head question writer, and I interviewed Dicker. But, I mean, geeks is interesting because there's, like, a comedy element to that, too. You know, the, the questions and the rounds are really, really curated. And yeah. And so you, I, it makes perfect sense to me that you worked there, but I can imagine that leading, yeah, to a lot of burnout. Yeah, they would want, they would want like, oh, yeah, uh, kind of – you can make the questions funny or anything. And I like did not, I was like, for the rate you're paying, I'm just giving you guys the questions. Like, because I was also doing comedy. So I was like, uh, I'm down to like write jokes and questions, but that would be a different, uh, yeah. rate for what you were getting. And I also hosted the, yeah, I would host the quiz. I did it at the British bulldog and there used to be a place called the whiskey bar. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, gosh, I just, there was another place off sixth Avenue. Yeah, yeah, I, it was I did, fun. I did the whiskey bar with, uh, when Emilio was running that quiz. Um, I used to, I used to check in at the whiskey bar, but I, I did out at Casey's with, uh, did you ever know John Lahendro? I didn't I, remember. He was, he was a quiz master guy. Um, I, I think he wrote a little bit, but he would always be in like the big geek bowl opening numbers. He was, he was our quiz master. He was phenomenal. Nice. Yeah, that was a fun job, especially back when I was drinking, cause I'd have like a nice hefty bar tab that I could uh, <laughs> drink through all night. There you go. Well done. Um, I don't even remember that. I don't remember the video you're talking about. What what was my what did I do in the video? Well, at one point, uh Adam hits you with a cane because you have your <laughs> phone out. Um I, I think it's the back of your chair, honestly, that he hits. But, but um and at one point you're holding like a uh, like a glucose monitor, you're like, I could die. And it's like, away. Um it, <laughs> wow. I I have no memory of this. I guess my brain is uh filled up with uh, entertainment memories because I don't remember doing this. That, that's all right because <laughs> I, uh, <that's... laughs> I, I had been reading Adam in the Westward for a while and so I saw him do it and I'm like, who are these other guys? So I looked that up and I saw you and I, I'm forgetting who the who the third one was in it. But yeah, at one point, Adam's trying to do the intro and he just says, I'm Barbara Walters. I'm Hugh Downs. And this is... Uh, and it, anyway, I was in on the Growlix sensibility like right then because you guys previous to that were called, um, and we got to wrap up here in a second, but previous to that you were called like, uh, was it like Los, what the hell was it? Los Comedy? Los Comicos Super Hilariosos. Yeah. That was the right. show that predated the Growlix and, um, yeah, that was a larger comedy group. Yeah. We started at old Curtis street. Um, and it was just Adam and I and a few other comics and we'd perform for like four people. <laughs> it was like nobody and it grew that stuff like that grows so slowly, but you just have to keep doing it until where you, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is like a full room. Like, but it doesn't happen. A lot of people think it's like the venue. They'll be like, Oh, I want to do a show at the bug. The bug is a theater here in Denver. Oh, and, I know the bug. Um, so yeah. my, my 48 hour film team, Alex is usually part of it. Alex, Eileen, Mike Henderson. All, oh, nice. Yeah. I love the 48 hour film fest. Yeah. That's like the yeah. team that, that, uh, I write for. 
Um, I didn't nice. this year because it was on my birthday. It was my 40th birthday. I was in Portland. But yeah, no, I know Alex, Eileen, Mike, the whole crew. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. The, the bug is a cool place. That's where we do our show, the Grolics now. And, uh, we pack it out and people come, you know, they see it and they're like, Oh, I want to do a comedy show at the bug. And they do it and, you know, they get, I don't know, 12 people or whatever. And they get, they get frustrated and, and it's like, well, we didn't start our show at the bug. We started it at old Curtis Street, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. And w- then we went to an art gallery that we got to use. And then we went to the 17th Avenue theater. And then we went like, it's, it's taken all these like steps to get up there. And I forget, I don't even know where I'm just going with this. Oh yeah. The Los, Co- Los Comicos thing. Yeah. We just evolved out of the, out of the Lo- Los Comicos show. I'll tell you what, Andrew, I have appreciated your work for a number of years. This is a real privilege to get to talk to you, so I'm thrilled to highlight it again. Now's the time on the show when we do plugs, so where can people find you? Uh, where can they follow along? Anything you want to plug, please do it now. Cool. Um, well, you can see me do comedy. I, wear, I mean, I wherever I'm, I took my website down because it was getting absolutely bombarded by uh scams and stuff like that i was like no one's checking my website anyway uh you can find me i'll be i'll be plugging my shows on twitter at the orbital which is my last name if you're interested in any of my game uh biz stuff my game company is called occupied hex and the website is occupiedhex.com i don't know when this will air but i might have a game on kickstarter uh, it'll be up there till october 14th um you can go on kickstarter and look for my game duster it's on there, and if you want to check that out, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. And check out the Grolic Saves the World podcast, wherever you enjoy podcasts. It's a silly good time. So this will be live before that. This is, this, uh, what is today, Thursday. It's going to go live in six days. So, Great. Um, so, yeah, that's perfect. All of that will be in the companion blog piece at johnofalltrades.us. Also on all the podcatchers in the show notes. So if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and I think I was just recently added to Audible and Amazon. So wherever you get your pods, you can find the links there. Andrew, man, what a thrill, and uh, I wish you nothing but continued success. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully I wasn't too boring uh, blabbering about games. It's not the sexiest uh, topic, but, <laughs> <laughs> but thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. It was great. And that'll do it for episode 305 of the John of All Trades podcast. Big thanks to Andrew Orvidal for being here. Be sure to check out all of his work. He gave you the links. I gave you the places you could find them. No matter what podcatcher you're using, it'll be in the show notes. The easiest way is to go to johnofalltrades.us. J-O-N of alltrades.us. Our sponsor is 4Degrees. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, 4Degrees can help you do it better. They'll help you optimize it. They'll help you get your message front of the people who need to see it most literally i have seen their work and blown away by it they continue to win awards for it and i'm proud to feature them as my sponsor check out four degrees the number four d-e-g-r-e dot e-s the john of all trades podcast is a production of deft communications check out deft on the web d-e-f-t-c-o-m dot u-s i do all manner of traditional pr not so much crisis communication but everything else whether that's training you for presentations, getting you ready for media, getting you to engage with media more, and I also do podcasting. If you have an idea, I can help you get it on the wheel. And then I can help you produce it. I have six shows under me right now that I'm working on in some capacity. It's a thrill, it's a dream come true, and I'd love to work with you too. So hit me up, john, J-O-N, at defcom.us. As I mentioned, I'm out of this creative funk. 
feeling great. I've got shows booked. They're coming fast and furious uh, once a week. But, you know, that's the podcast game. So stay up with me on social, J-O-H-E-Pod. Be sure to check out the website, johnofalltrades.us. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.